This is Beth Butler, and thank you for listening to From the Ground Up, where we chat with people in and around the real estate industry. I have been in the real estate business for 35 years, and much of my experience has been about building the business from the ground up. And I'm pleased to share some of the people who I've met along the way and who have helped me build in this podcast. Today on From the Ground Up, we welcome Mark Davison, co-founder and chief creative officer for 1000 Watt. I first met Mark back in 1998 on Active Rain and at Inman conferences. And let me tell you a little bit about Mark. Mark has spent much of his career helping brands both inside and outside of real estate reach deep within, say something authentic and new and better connect with their customer base. He entered the real estate space in 1998 when he contracted with Inman News to help build their brand and market their services. That's where he met Brian Boero. Together, they formed an incredible creative bond that led to the launch of 1000 Watt in 2007. Mark's 40 years of brand building experience has helped many real estate companies discover their true brilliance and differentiation. He's a proven speaker who can take an audience on an engaging journey, as you will find out today, inside the workings of a brand agency and reveal the hidden secrets of how to build a lasting and loved brand. I am so pleased to welcome Mark Davison. Thank you. Tell everybody, how did you get into the real estate space to begin with? Uh, well, well, first, thank you for inviting me. Uh, it's a pleasure to thank you. catch up with you again and be part of your show. So I, I got into it accidentally. Um, I was in the entertainment industry for many, many years, most of my career. Um, got started in the ad agency world on Madison Avenue, uh, left that. Um, to basically start my own entity in the entertainment space, uh, applying what I learned in the advertising space. Um, I had a company, I sold it, and moved to California, um, bought a house, and had a home inspection. Um, And uh, my real estate agent got furious at my home inspector because the inspection report caused me to back away from the sale. And my agent called the inspector a deal killer. uh, And I was left kind of perplexed as a consumer uh, as to whose side my agent is on. Um, And so I wasn't going to back down from my decision to not purchase a home with a sinking foundation uh, and an electrical box that was a massive safety hazard. Uh, I found another home. Uh, that did better on the inspection report, bought that, uh, but then proceeded to uh, work with the home inspector to develop content for what was at the time sort of a burgeoning internet filled with content. Content, remember back then and still today, content was king. That was sort of the phrase. Um, And I, sort of having an eye for talent, I mean, it's what I did for 21 years. I represented performers and people with talent. I saw this home inspector as an individual with the talent, uh, meaning he knew things most others didn't, and his heart was in the right place because he was representing my best interest. So I uh, I did what I do best. I <laughs> turned him into somewhat of a celebrity within a year, uh, 
I built a brand around him called Inspectors in the House. Uh, I helped him compose hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of Q&A questions around the home inspection and how it impacts real estate. And I licensed that content to hundreds of newspapers around the country and um, maybe a thousand websites who were looking to have real estate content. Now, I knew nothing about syndicating content and I knew even less about real estate. Uh, Two good things to have, you know, or at least one good thing to have when you're starting out is to know nothing about what you're doing because I basically did not allow the rules that confined everybody within the space to, you know, hold me back. I just did what I thought would be naturally what you would do. Uh, that got the attention of Inman News, who at the time in 1998 was also sort of a burgeoning news syndicate with content that uh, was trying to penetrate the syndicate market. And I had with one article, you know, maybe 10 times the syndication. So they invited me into Inman as a freelance person to help build their brand, build awareness and use whatever skills I had at selling, which I'm still not sure I have skills in that, uh, to you know, leverage their content and enhance sales and, and, and business for them. So that got me into real estate. An interesting journey along the way, but it's, but it's funny, again, I talked to so many people and just kind of go back and ask them that very same question. And it's always amazing to me how many people got into the space because of a, maybe let's call it a less than positive experience or like that aha moment, like, well, I could certainly do this better than the experience I had, or I see an opportunity in, in the real estate space. So um, I didn't realize that that was your background. It's very interesting. Thank you for sharing. So let's fast forward to today. And with, with 1000 Watt, just talk about what is the primary scope of your services? Well, you know, Okay, so it was 2006. I had been with Inman for many years and worked with them and helped with their conferences and promoting and building the brand. And I had access to the industry. I got to see what's going on in the industry. Um, and I noticed something that I felt was actually uh, quite influential in, in my overall thinking, which was that this is a wonderful industry that does amazing things. Um, but its public perception was very negative. And, um, you know, people do judge books by their cover. And real estate's cover uh, kind of supported or even perpetuated sort of a negative stereotype around itself. I mean, just go back to the late 1990s, 1980s, whatever, that whole era of caricature, cartoonish marketing, Hobbs Herder marketing, like bad marketing, no branding at all, just like really bad marketing. Um, so the world at large had a perception of real estate that was by far and large negative. But yet in the seven years or so that I had been in real estate, my impression of the industry was so different. I met super amazing people, powerful people, people with good hearts, good minds, uh, and a deep dedication to doing the right thing. And that just wasn't getting out there. So I formed thousand watt with this vision to just make the industry more respected by the public. And within that big container was a, you know, a lot of detail, but like that was the overarching 
vision. And the way I was going to make that come to life was to utilize everything I learned in the marketing and advertising world, having come up, you know, as a young advertiser, young and Rubicam, and like what I learned owning my own PR and management agency for 21 years. Uh, so our primary skill set is branding. It's identity design. It's messaging. It's positioning. It's strategy. It's all the things that like take a company and make it a brand. Um, so, you know, within that, there's a lot that we do, but there's also things we don't do. And uh, we're real clear about what we don't do um, so that we you know, don't um, produce anything that would be less than as amazing as it could be. And I think that if I could just kind of pick out one tidbit there that I really appreciate what you said and being familiar with your work, certainly understand it, is that you develop someone's identity, right? So a brand, and I feel like so much in real estate and even going back to Hobbs Herder and before, that people thought branding was a lot of things. It was a logo. It was a signature. It was a glamour shot. It was, you know, I don't know, you behind the boat, the wheel of a boat and saying you're a captain. I don't know. It was all kinds of contrived sorts of things, but it was never about what your identity is. And I love that you said that because that's truly when someone works with you and your team, that's exactly what it starts with. And I don't think it's something that many agents or real estate companies really think about when they approach their marketing, right? It's about what we're selling and we're selling this and we're selling that, but not really who we are and what we're trying to say. And you are really that singular voice in this industry to so many people to develop that identity. So I think that that was, that, that was really what was so revolutionary about what you were doing at the time. I mean, it seems simple but it, and obvious, but apparently it wasn't because nobody was doing it. Nobody really thought about it. So at least with what you're saying, yes, I think that that was that, that loss of identity and that exploration of what your identity is, is such an important part of what companies especially needed to address before they move forward with their marketing and their branding. The misunderstanding that people have is that branding is not, it's not those personalized things like, you know, you, you being behind the wheel of a sports car or posing with a, a, an animal, um, yeah, that says a lot about you and what you like. But that's not branding. That's marketing. That's not branding. Branding is creating elements that the public at large, or we'll call your audience, sees themselves as being part of. And so, like, that's the trick is, sure, if you're posing with a horse... Uh, that really appeals to people who like horses, but what about everyone else? Uh, or, you know, maybe that's very strategic because you sell real estate in horse country, but like, think about like all the agents posing with dogs, just trying to appeal in general to dog lovers. That doesn't speak to somebody who's not a dog lover. So like branding is not about alienating. It's about creating an environment using you know, story and positioning and brand assets and foundational pillars that connect with the consumer. I need to see myself within your story. Uh, and all that early stuff, there was no room left in those stories that agents were telling or brokers were telling that the consumer can see themselves in. Um, so that's, that's the, the, the core that we were going for. And I'll tell you, Beth, even today, People still call me up and 
want to hire us, but they're still not sure exactly what we do. Because this idea of what, you know, the rest of the world knows about branding is still not fully baked and understood in real estate. And that's okay. I love educating and I love explaining and I love taking people through the journey of what happens when you move from marketing to branding. It opens up a whole new sense of self. Well, and I guess that sense of self, that exploration, the sense of self, I mean, do you find that that's challenging with most people i don't like i found like when when i was working with you and and you started asking me some of those explorative type of questions i thought i've never thought about this before i thought it was kind of hard actually so do you find that that's typically the case or do you or do you think people are more self-aware than that i just i just generally not sure that that people are as self-aware about what their personal identity or even what their company identity is you know at the time you, you were more astute than many of our clientele back then. I think there's been a lot of, since then, we, we, for many years, we would never show any of the work that we would do to the public. So the public was really clueless about our whole thing. Now we have case studies on our website. We showcase the, the, you know, the results of the engagements that we have. So the industry is a little bit, a lot more aware of like what the transformation is. But I think that day of discovery where we come in and start to pry things open, um, we have learned how to take someone through that without it feeling hard. Because um, we ask a lot of questions that sometimes you can't answer, but it's not a test. So like, I don't know, you know, quote unquote, is a great answer for us rather than like, feeling the pressure to make something up that turns out to not really be truthful. Um, it's really actually kind of critical because I'll tell you, there have been many times in the past where we would produce work based upon what we're told and the client goes, well, that's not really us, but like, but that's what you told us. And then they go, yeah, well, you know what? We need to tell you more. We need to be more honest about, you know, some of the things that you asked us. So we have learned how to be better question askers and how to, you know, delve deeper and pry more uh, and make it a little less painful um, and more fun. This should be a lot of fun to discover a side of yourself that is you, but it may be that untapped thing that you never really realized that you can go with. Um, and, and the amount of power that ends up behind all that is, it's always that moment for clients, Beth, when we get to that moment where we show them like this is this is what you need to go to market with there's this big sense of exhilaration and relief over like this is truly us and wow we've never thought of using this before and no one else uses anything like this so this is going to be our weapon and only our weapon um, and creating differentiation in the marketplace is the key to all of this yeah, and and you and you do great work. I mean, I I just I'm thinking now. I know you've done. I've seen you worked with concierge auctions. You did a great job with them. Hasn't just been real estate brokerages you, on your website, and I've been tracking it because you know I'm in Florida. What you did with Michael Saunders is also phenomenal. I mean, just taking that. She's an amazing lady. She's built an amazing company, and how you were able to capture the essence of her 
and her identity and weave that into the company story, which is pretty powerful in, in all of their stuff, I think is really, I can see a huge difference. And, and I see a lot of Michael in all of her advertising now, which is, which is really, I think, special. And I think of that, but you've also kind of now worked more into teams. And so what kind of led you to working with agent teams and how do you approach them is it the same or, or different than what you've done with brokerages? Um, we got into teams because, um, you know, for years and years, agents and teams would call us uh, inquiring about our services. Um, they actually need our services maybe more so than brokerage in a way. Um, so we had attempted to do it, but we found um, we didn't know how. There were some challenges in working with a team. Like, what do you do when it's uh, um, you send in the first stage of your work for evaluation, and it's three weeks later, and you're still not getting an email back saying uh, or giving you direction or, or giving you feedback? Or you schedule meetings, and then they cancel meetings at the last minute because there's a buyer or a seller that needs them. That's real. We, we are very sympathetic to that. But you can't run a successful project uh, when there's so much lapse in connectivity. Um, and then there was also the price point. I mean, I built a company with extraordinary talent here to, to execute on, on my vision for the company. Um, these people are worth money. They're, they're, you know, they're paid well. They're the best in their field. I have to get a certain price point for my services that were historically over and above what agents should spend. Um, and so here's a funny story. I got a phone call from a woman named uh, Beth, uh, and that's her real name. Um, and I, you know, gracefully tried to explain that we don't work with teams. And she said, well, that's, you didn't work with teams. Now you will work with teams. You will work with us. And uh, I'm like, I appreciate that, but no, we're not going to do that. Um, and she did not let up uh, and insisted that I also meet with her husband, Michael, um, and talk to him before I, I say no. And I'm like, okay, I'll talk to Michael, but I'm going to say no because I don't know exactly how to do it. So I spoke to Michael, um, and I asked him one question and that one his response to that question told me that I can actually work with them. I'll be able to work with them. And uh, it turned out to be the best project of the year. And it was through that project that I discovered how this can be done. Um, they taught us a bunch, um, including how, how, like who to say yes to and who to say no to. So a lot of it begins at the, the sales call. You know, you have a conversation. You'll get signs during that conversation that the client's going to be a good client or the client's going to not be a good client. And so I learned what to listen for and, you know, what to respond to and how to respond to it. And I would say ever since that moment when we decided we're going to do another one and another one, We've been doing so many, and they've all been so amazing because we know who to pick. We know how to pick them. Um, we know how to get them queued up to work with us uh, and to be part of the project with us. And the results have been 
fantastic. So uh, I owe Beth and Michael Silva from Houston so much love and gratitude because they really were, in a way, the architects of like our team's program. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I guess overall the team structure has really evolved since, you know, I'd say significantly in these last 10 years in particular. And I look at these mega teams and I mean, really they're small companies inside a company. And now we've got people growing across state lines, national teams. It's, it's really pretty phenomenal. And they have an organizational structure again, that's similar to what you would find in a company. And they've got operations managers and chief operating officers and financial people and marketing. I mean, it really has become, some of these teams have really become great companies within themselves. And then do you find there's any challenge with branding a team identity under uh, their corporate brand, right? Is, is a brand within a brand? How do you How do you look at that? Do you find that agents are trying to differentiate themselves from the rest of people in their company or just the rest of people in the market as a whole? It's both. Um, yes, there are some challenges, uh, but this is one of the things that we needed to learn and define, which is um, we need to ask a question like, what are your brokerage's rules around a yard sign? And if they say, well, we have to use the brokerage branding and all of our yard signs, we know, okay, let's not put our effort and energy into designing or developing a yard sign for them. But their identity can live in many other places than a yard sign. And um, so, yes, there are challenges, um, but we've learned how to navigate through all of them. You know, there's one thing that a team doesn't have, which has really become the, their greatest asset, which is within a brokerage, while there may be like one final decision maker, there's many, many, many people with opinions that influence a decision. And um, it has become so wonderful to work with a team where the decision maker is the head of the team. Or, you know, in Michael and Beth's case, it was Michael and Beth. Uh, actually, in their case, it was Michael, Beth, Ashley, and Kate, four stakeholders uh, that really just all thought exactly the same and were unanimous on every single decision. But they didn't then have to go to managers and ask groups of agents to weigh in. And, you know, we got to get approval from the relocation director on a new identity. Like, the amount of hurdles that we often have to go through in big brokerage projects to get approval or buy-in... In many cases, Beth, the work ends up becoming not as good because too many people have too much of a say. But with a team, it's like you get one, one person or two people making a decision. They don't have to worry about how everybody else thinks. And the projects move quick, and the work is so much better because of that. Well, it does. Yeah, it doesn't get diluted, right? I feel like sometimes you, you know, you start out with a great idea, but once you open it up to so many opinions, it just gets watered down and watered down and watered down and watered down. So what was great by the time it gets it put out is almost mediocre. It's just not as good as it was to begin with, because it's, it's just gone through too many hands, if you want to call it that. But I will say, though, that there are times where decisions are being made uh, or requests are being made from us to 
create mediocre. Uh, and I will step in and go, I'm not going to do that. Sorry, if that's what you want, take the job back and we'll exit, ex you know, we'll exit the project and refund your money. But I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to take, as a rule, we are not going to take someone's money um, and become, you know, the pen pusher. Like, I don't um, want my team to be taking color direction or copy direction from people with inside of the client side who don't have skills and background like we have. Um, what I need is feedback. I need editing. I need to say, you know, this line isn't resonating with us. We need another line. But when I start getting headlines and lines of copy and, you know, slogan ideas from the rank and file, now I'm having to make decisions based upon work that's not really thought out or good or based on anything other than an idea. Like, oh, I have, a, I have an idea. What about this? It's like, well, what are you basing that on? I don't know. It just feels good to me. Well, it's not good enough for us. So, uh, you know what? I never. It's rarely ever a problem. Usually, in almost every case, clients are great. They respect us. Um, and it's getting better and better over time. The more work that we do gets out into the public, the more people are feeling like, you know, we'll sit back and let those guys do all the heavy lifting. And then we'll just, you know. Um, so like I said, teams are wonderful for that. And most of our broker clients have been, you know, you mentioned Michael. Michael had a problem with nowhere but here as the slogan and fought me for a month on it. Um, and, but to her credit, uh, never told me to create something else, would just voice her opinion uh, until the moment of truth hit her, where um, she went past the first two stages of truth, which is uh, ridiculed and violent opposition, and then came through the other side and saw it for what it really was, and now is the biggest cheerleader of it. Um, so, you know, like that's all good. It is good. I mean, it's outside perspective too, right? It's somebody looking, taking what they know about you and kind of taking it back to you. And you're not always ready to hear that at first, right? Sometimes it takes a while and you might just hate it, but then it, you know, and you sit with it, you go through it, you think about it. And then, you know, before too long, it was your idea to change it. So <laughs> it's, it's funny how that works. I get, you guys have always been great about monitoring uh, high level industry changes. I mean, I love, Brian's Friday email. I I read it religiously. Me too. And, me too. And, and 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 it makes me feel plugged into the industry as a whole. Where sometimes I feel like I get kind of pigeonholed in my own little world. So it does make me open my eyes and see what's going on. So right now, what kind of industry changes are you guys monitoring or looking at? Well, clearly Brian, um, who is a super creative guy. Um, and I don't think he oftentimes gets the credit for being creative. Um, I, I tend to get more of that credit just because, like, I embody that through my kooky hairdo and my lack of convention when it comes to dressing. Um, but Brian, Brian and I were the authors of all of Inman's advertising from 98 to maybe 2000, mid-2000. Um, and I always viewed him as sort of my McCartney to, to not that I'm a John Lennon or he's a Paul McCartney, but just like the, the compatibility that those two writers had to work off each other and create great stuff. I always felt like he was my creative um, 
double in that regard. But Brian does have a much greater interest in industry trends than I do. I don't really pay attention to them. I don't really monitor trends in the sense that like I'm tracking a trend and analyzing it. So like, you know, to the point where like I create data around a trend and then evaluate it based on that. Um, you know, my role at Thousand Watt is, you know, I have a fancy title. Um, but what I, I do is I work with all the creative teams and I um, basically am the client's advocate on all the projects. So every project that we have, I'm involved in making sure that the creative is as good as it can get and meets the client's deepest desire. So my head is completely inside that. But in general, I'd say what I kind of see in real estate, um, some obvious stuff. There's definitely uh, activity in merger and acquisition. Brokerages are banding together for like Ladder and Bloom and Gardner just recently um, merged. Ladder and Bloom purchased Gardner. Uh, it was a very strategic, smart, really beautiful uh, move for both families. So I think... We're seeing a lot of that as a trend, but that's always kind of been a trend. There's always been that activity. Um, I think the explosion of teams is certainly a trend. Um, I'm seeing an increased level of quality and skill set in personnel, like key role personnel, leadership roles within brokerage. Um, And, you know, in the old days, we're like, you know, somebody worked as an agent and didn't quite cut it as an agent could end up as the director of marketing at the brokerage um, or some semblance of that. You know, you grow through the ranks as an agent and you become VP of something at a brokerage. And I get it. That's cool. Um, but of late, like that doesn't quite cut it. Not when you're competing with the likes of a compass where like everybody who works at corporate are brilliant. Um, you need that level of, you know, aptitude within your own brokerage. So I'm seeing more of that kind of hiring taking place. I'm interacting with more and more people at brokerage who, like in the marketing department, who actually understand what we do. Um, And we can speak on the same level rather than us having to explain everything. So I'm liking that a lot. Um, I'm obviously seeing like this trend towards better branding better strategies, out-of-the-box thinking, and just this overall appreciation for really good design and what design can do. Um, So I'm I'm seeing that definitely as a trend. Beth, I'm also seeing, um, I'm seeing better vendors, smarter vendors, Uh, vendors that I think you can count on more in real estate right now than ever before. Um, And you know, there's maybe too many to mention, but, you know, like companies like Curator or, or MoxieWorks uh, or Realvolve, like these are smart, good, dedicated, like the people behind them know what they're talking about. They're not slinging bullshit. Right, right. Something that didn't work. Yeah. Something that didn't work in another industry that they put lipstick on and said, oh, now that's for real estate. Yeah. No, these vendors are building good services, good products. They bring a lot of value to the table. And I think that uh, there's a trend to deploy and use these folks. Um, And, 
So I, you know, there's that, probably other trends. But again, like, I'm not going to say my head's in the sand, but I'm not quite as periscoped out as Brian is on that. Do you have any thoughts on this? And I know you worked with Zillow back in the early day, this co-star versus Zillow challenge. I mean, it's sort of lighting up, you know, Inman and the real deal and these kind of talks now that CoStar with their acquisition of HomeSnap is going to, you know, take Zillow head on. Do you have any thoughts about that and about this, you know, these non um, brokerage wielding property information companies now? How do, how do you feel like that's going to, number one, affect impact each other and impact the industry? Do you have any thoughts? Uh, I don't think about it. Like, I, honestly, I don't really care. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you why I don't care in a second, as that formulates into concrete thinking. But, I mean, there are two giants in a ring that are going to battle it out. Uh, I have no skin in either game. Um, odds are they're, they're both emerge victorious in their own rights. Um, neither company really represents my home team. So, like, I'm not necessarily rooting for one or the other. Um, I tend to like Zillow more just because I connect with Zillow as a consumer. Um, Forget the real estate politics for a second. It's a consumer brand. Um, And as a consumer, you know, what's not to like? You know, you could say, well, their Zestimates are inaccurate. So what? I know it. It's called the Zestimate. Like, it's a fake word. It's, It's a fake estimate. Like, you come at it knowing it's not 100%. Um... So, but, you know, they've been transparent and they provide a lot of data and a lot of information. People like that. So, I don't know. I, I like, you know, I, I'm friends with Spencer and, you know, I don't know the folks that run it now. I know of them. I've interacted with them through email. But, like, I don't know. I, I guess maybe my bet would be on Zillow. Um, but really, Beth, like, there's so much focus on the politics of this and I feel like it's a massive waste of time for brokerage. Um, and there's this reality in real estate. It's kind of like talk radio or news radio where like uh, you have people, I mean, we've seen this happen over the course of the last four years on Twitter. Folks have risen to grand popularity commenting around, you know, the president or his policies. Uh, and they were just using it to build celebrity around themselves. That happens in real estate. There are people who love to commandeer this topic and politicize these things and turn reality into massive hyperbole um, in order to capture attention. But here's the problem. If you only listen to Fox or only listen to CNN, you're only only going to get just one side of everything and you're never going to get the whole story anyway. So I pay no attention to that dialogue in real estate. Um, but here's my concrete thought based on that initial question. If you go back in time to 2006, uh, the brokerage had it pretty good. Um, yes, we were at, you know, we were facing a, an impending recession that blossomed into what it was, but like the brokerage was in good place. Um, but they got sidetracked. They got hypnotized by Zillow and Trulia and Realtor.com and Redfin. And I want you to think for a minute around the vast amount of money and time they spent trying to compete with them and to what end. In my opinion, they dropped the ball on the components of real estate that only they could ever own, and they let that go. 
And like, look who now sits at the top of the totem pole. It's the agent and the team. They rule the roost. And the reason why is because I think for the most part, brokerage let that go. Uh, they fought this invisible enemy. Um, and so, you know, back in 1999, that famous uh, uh, Bill Chi uh, I was that there. speech our, right, the lion's over the hill. Everybody kept thinking that the lion over the hill would be some big technology or some big yeah. interloper. It was, it, was, it was Microsoft. It was Google. It was, yeah. yeah. yeah the lion over the hill is you. It's yourself. And the moment you let other people get into your head and distract you from what's real, that's the lion. Um, and that continues to be so like this conversation around CoStar and Zillow, it's going to ignite political conversation and brokers are going to get sidetracked again and take their eye off the ball again. Um, and they will not emerge victorious at any level if they allow themselves to do that. So I guess that's my thought on those two. Like who gives a shit? Uh, <laughs> they're going to do I, I, what they're going to do. I hear you perfectly loud and clear, kind of reliving back when Zillow came and, 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 and the industry, right? There's always something, there's a reflection of some ill, right? Instead of trying to figure out how do I make my house better, we're just going to be busy watching everybody else. And that's really certainly what happened with Zillow. I mean, brokers were very late to respond. And I, I, but I guess I was thinking more from, to me, the thing that I think about is really kind of from an agent perspective almost instead of a brokerage perspective. I've met so many young agents now in the last few years that have really built their career by doing Zillow leads, right? So that's a, it's a, it's a very not uncommon path into the business, right? You get in, you don't really have a sphere. And like maybe we used to, you know, back in the old days, go knock on doors or make cold calls. Don't do that so much anymore. Or we work in open house. They go and they, you know, invest in Zillow leads, which builds which builds a clientele over time until they can kind of build their own business in their own sphere. And so I kind of am wondering just the mechanics of how does that impact that that relationship with an agent, right? CoStar is a very different pricing model. I know that they'll interact with the with the agent base in some way. I just kind of wonder from a perspective of that agent, like what value could it bring to an agent? Like I know I, I'm a CoStar subscriber. I know what CoStar does for commercial real estate agents. Does that translate to the residential side? Or So I, I kind of more work on like what's a day-to-day impact in an agent's life? Um, and, and maybe that's my, you know, the broker in me and that in my heart, I'm, I'll always be a real estate agent, even though I really haven't sold property in a really long time. But, but, but I think that way, right? That's just how I think. And after all that Hubble, you know, I don't, I cannot believe that after, you know, when, when Zillow started that, that there would be a day where I would say, oh yeah, I have met agents that spend five and $6,000 a month on Zillow leads to build their business. Like that just never <laughs> That's mind blowing to me still today, but it but it works, and so that's really what I was just that that's where my mind is about it. I, the politics aside, what it means for brokerages. I mean, again, we've had so many opportunities as an industry to do something differently and have failed and been unable to get it together to be able to to compete in this kind of space in any way, real way, shape, or form. So, 
I think that ship is long gone, but now it's more that it's become just part of the day-to-day fabric of what agents do and how will this impact them? Is it going to be better for them to have a competitor? Is it, is it, is it, you know, I don't know. I just, that's, that's what I've been thinking about. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or not. I think there's always, there's always, there's always an opportunity. There's always an area that somebody is not paying attention to that a smart brand or a smart company can access if it's within their wheelhouse. For me as a broker, like if I were a broker, I would look at this as, okay, one less thing that I have to worry about um, and do. Let me find a way to embrace these entities and maybe create even opportunities for my agents to work with these companies. And then let me focus on other things that they can't do for my agent that only I can do as a broker. So that's just sort of like my universal thinking around it, you know. Um, without getting into too, too much detail. I guess the other sort of uh, bigger, big news torn from the headlines type of real estate news that's going on right now is the National Association of Realtors Department of Justice lawsuits that's, out, that's now been settled with having to report compensation um, to the public, which, you know, some people have been doing for a while. I, I, I don't consider it earth shattering, but there is, like you said, there's a lot of noise. There is a lot of noise around it. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, there's a lot of noise around it and uh, stop paying attention to the noise. It's, it's a distraction. Um, it, there's nothing wrong with, look, I have historically not been a fan of NAR. I've had a lot of uh, interactions with them. Um, in the past, uh, I have been very vocal about how I feel about NAR, uh, when they aren't doing the right thing. Um, in this case, like, I think transparency is a wonderful thing. The more people know, uh, the better it is for the consumer, the better it is for everybody. Um, I, I don't think transparency around compensation is really... Uh, the discussion that should be had. I think that there's a lack of transparency around what agents actually do. Uh, And I think there's even a greater lack of transparency around what a brokerage does. But no one knows what a brokerage does. It's just, it's, it's, it's opaque. People just think it's a place where agents work. They have no sense of like what happens inside of a brokerage. Um, So, you know, I would like to see, and there's no, there's nobody stopping this from happening, but I don't think consumers have a true appreciation of the agent, even during a transaction, because there's so much going on that you don't get to see. There's a lot agents do and a lot of brokerages do, but they just don't ever explain to people. And I think that there, that's not even an art thing. That's just my general comment about transparency. But to answer your question, I don't think it'll have any kind of a negative lasting impact. I think the more people know about how people who represent them are paid, the more respect or lack of respect they're going to have, and the more that's going to force participants of this industry to earn their keep. So I think it'll be good. I like that, thinking about just what does a, being a lot more transparent, I mean, it, again, it goes, so much of this stuff just goes back, you know, when I first got into business, that's literally what they used to tell you, that's how they used to train you. 
right? You're going to, you have to sit down, you meet a buyer, you have to bring them into the office and sit down with them and tell them how we work, right? This is what the process looks like. This is how I pay this like basic stuff because nobody knows how this works. And I don't know, I haven't heard anybody talk like that in a really long time. So I think that we just assume because so much information and data is out there that people know a lot more about what it is we do and how we work than they actually do do. I think that's great advice. Anything else? Anything else that you think that is a, I don't want to call it an industry trend, but anything that's out there that you think that that people that might be listening might want to think about or or, or reflect upon as we're coming into uh, 2021, hard to believe? We often use the term the industry, but what is the industry? I'm not really sure I know what that is. If I had to define it, um, what is it? Uh, maybe I would say that the industry is actually a composite of many things. There's different, it's almost like religion, you know, there's different sects within every religion, uh, you know, S-E-C-T-S. Um, there's the industry that like goes to conferences and hangs on every word of every speaker that speaks on a stage and then leaves that conference and they run back home and execute on everything that they were told at a conference because uh, they value they value that. That's part of that's a part of the industry. But then there's also the other industry, which is just the men and women who sell and buy, you know, help people buy and sell real estate, who live in little towns all around the country who never heard of in the news, who never heard of any of this stuff. Don't know what risk media is, never read Stefan Stefan Swanepoel, and you know, they just go about their everyday helping people buy and sell real estate. It's another side of the industry that doesn't get a whole lot of steam. So I'm not really sure like what the industry is as a whole, other than it's just a collection of all these people who help people buy and sell. But what I, I think I am seeing is a breaking away. There are participants who are breaking away from the paradigms of real estate, meaning they're focusing less uh, on what the industry does or what their fellow brokers do. Um, and they're focusing in on themselves and like what strategies and tactics may be more aligned with who they are and what they need to do to create like better connections with the marketplace and better connections with the agency. So it's like, I'm seeing more and more now, look, I'm seeing them because they're hiring us. They're coming to us for that. And I'm seeing more of that than ever before. Greater velocity of people calling saying, we want to be different. We want to do different things. And I've had clients say, you know, you guys, I've worked with a lot of companies in real estate. You seem to be too steeped in this industry. How do I know that I'm going to get an original idea? Uh, it's a great question. Uh, and the answer is because we're in the industry, we see everything. We know what we shouldn't be doing. Um, and we know what's also possible for you to do that's outside of convention. So I would say that that's a thing. Um, and I'm, I'm seeing more and more of that, especially among teams, who really feel the need to craft differentiation between all the other. Uh, and look, Beth, when we go do a project and, and do analysis, 
we do a competitive analysis. So we look at a client's top five or 10 competitors. So in a world where, where marketing is created to get people to buy and sell your product or services, in that regard, so much of the marketing speak is all the same. Uh, how many different ways can you tell people to buy a listing or come to your open house or use you as, as your agent? When you get to the brand layer where you're creating branding over your marketing, the branding is designed to make people believe in your marketing. So at that level, when you're creating that kind of messaging um, and those elements, uh, that's where you have to resort to unique and different. Uh, and we're seeing that as a trend. More and more people are understanding that, are needing that, are wanting that. They're recognizing uh, the similarities between their stuff and all their competitor stuff in the marketplace. Uh, so I'm seeing that as a trend. Um, I'm also, and this is a personal happiness moment for me, I'm seeing less and less of an interest in these, uh, you know, like these lists that get made in real estate, the top 10 smartest people here, the top 20 powerful people there. Uh, people are becoming less and less interested in that kind of stuff. They, they see through it. They know what it is. Uh, it's just marketing. They don't take it seriously anymore. So, so speaking of somebody that tried to do it differently, you know, Compass certainly came and, and has made uh, quite an impression in the market by trying to do real estate a little bit differently. In, in those Friday emails, your partner, Brian, has been pretty vocal about failing to see the lack of value in what Compass is doing. The IPO is around the corner. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, specifically to, to, to Brian or to... Um... For somebody that's trying to do something that's different and smart and resonates a little bit differently with people that might not have been in the industry for a million years, how is it that we can be a little bit more receptive to those kind of changes and listen to it and not make it so uh, diff? I don't, I don't want to say it's difficult, but it just shouldn't be that that even though everyone is a competitor at some point, we are an industry, we are trying to make positive change for an industry. Redfin did the same thing. Zillow did the same thing, but in a different space. But in the brokerage space, you're just not real open to change. Do you have any thoughts that you can share about that? I mean, I know you've worked with Realogy. You know, that that's as big of a big brokerage outfit that can be there. I know that they're wanting to do different things as well. How do we create an environment or how should we approach creating an environment that's a lot more receptive to make the changes that we all need to go through to be better at what we're doing? It's a big question. Um, I know. And as you kept speaking, like, different parts of your question were resonating with me. All right, let me start here. So I agree with Brian on most things. I mean, we're business partners. We've been working together for 25 years, I think, or something like that. Um, so clearly we agree on a lot of things, but clearly we also disagree on things. You, you can't create success with partners if you agree on everything. Um, I think Brian's the smartest person in real estate um, from a tactical, on a lot of levels, but tactically and, and understanding how all the pieces sort of work in real estate. I, I view him as really the smartest or one of the smartest um, guys around and gals around. Um, and there are many really intelligent ones, but I really bank a lot of my trust in, in how he processes, 
processes and things. Um, I think his perspective on Compass is accurate to a point, um, but I, I have a different opinion about Compass. I think there's more value to Compass um, than he might be willing to say out loud. But I think if I actually cornered him in a conversation and presented a perspective, he would he would see he would see where I'm coming from. Um, I don't feel like Compass has fought hard to get where they got. They just wrote checks, um, and I'll reduce it down to that. They bought their way to the top. That's okay though. Like I don't begrudge them for that. I think you use whatever tool you can, just because you know. There are companies in real estate that, you know, spent a hundred years getting to the top of their market. That's good for them. Compass doesn't have a hundred years. They bought their way to the top. Uh, in many ways, they fought what brokers would call a dirty fight. Um, I don't know that I would say that. Um, I think that there are no rules to recruiting. You do what you got to do to recruit. Um, I'd like to think that any agent that Compass purchased or convinced to come over, it's really less of a win for Compass and more of a loss for the brokerage that had the agent. We lost that agent. Um, and, you know, nobody's gotten my kids to become part of their family. Nobody's gotten my wife to cheat on me. Like, I've done my job in keeping my family intact. I think when you lose an agent to Compass, you've lost the agent to Compass. Compass didn't take that agent. You lost the agent. So I think in that regard, Compass has brought a gift to real estate, which, which is it's teaching real estate where its focus should be. Remember I said earlier on that like brokers took their eye off the ball and trying to compete with Compass? What I meant to say then is that Compass forgot to take care of their agents in a way that agents need to be taken care of. You know, the number one answer back to the question that we ask uh, Agents, why did you leave to go to Compass? They would say, because I just felt like I was invisible at my broker. Because my broker wasn't giving me what I needed. I think Compass is, if you're paying attention and listening, uh, hear me say this. Compass didn't really buy your agent. That check that they wrote is basically pouring salt on the wound. It's a big F you to the broker. It's, it's just, it's on top of, that agent had already left. And that agent was going somewhere. They were looking for something. They were unhappy. Compass got to them, like many other brokerages are trying to get to them, and said the right thing and brought them over and then gave them a check on top of it. Um, so I think that Compass is bringing a great gift to real estate in that it's teaching brokers where its loyalties really need to be, who its customer needs to be when i ask a broker who your customer is and they tell me the buyer and seller i'm like okay you're going to lose a lot of agents because of that because if you don't realize that your customer is the agent you've lost the compass because compass knows exactly who their customer is they use words and terms uh they talk to agents like agents are professionals uh they don't dumb stuff down for agents um they make agents feel like they're stepping up into a major league scenario where at least the perception that they're going to be viewed as different. It's kind of like when you work at Sotheby's, you've got sort of this badge. 
that you wear as a Sotheby's agent, that you're at the best of the best in luxury. I think Compass puts out this air that when you join Compass, you've been handpicked, you've been chosen by Compass to be part of the brand. And that gets to my last point, which is Compass built a brand. Now, it may not mean anything yet in the public, not like Zillow does, but in real estate, you mentioned Compass and you immediately strike fear uh, at at a broker level. If a broker knows that Compass is coming to town, they freak. They are scared. That's brand. That brand evokes that sense of fear, and it's what the brand does and how it does it that adds to its branding. Its identity is clean. It's black and white. It's you know sort of sort of monotone. It allows the agent's brand to pop out and be forward, um, as opposed to as many brokerages. Your the agent's brand just sits below the broker's brand. Uh, the agent is the main brand. The broker is the ingredient. And many brokers don't realize that yet. Compass does. Compass knows it's the ingredient. Uh, and so, like, there's a lot that Compass understands, and real estate can learn from that. How do you create an environment where we all just get along? Uh, you don't. You don't want that. I love friction. I think friction is how you create fire. Uh, and fire, you know, is, can keep you warm, but it can also burn stuff down. Uh, and if you burn the bad stuff down, that's great. Uh, and if you allow that friction to create a good, powerful fire that like warms stuff up and creates energy, that's fantastic. We talked a little bit about Compass now. Overall brokerages, I know, and we talked a little bit, just a little bit about the change that Michael Saunders and what they've done. What do you think brokers are doing right now? Do you think that maybe because of Compass, maybe not, that that brokerages are paying more attention to their customers, is paying more attention to technology, paying more attention to how their offices are staffed and run? I, what do you think brokerages are doing right now? Um, I can't speak to it as a collective uh, because there's just so many brokers out there uh, and there is no, like, there's no generalized, here's what brokers at Al are all doing right. Uh, I will say this, though. COVID presented a massive challenge to the brokerage, and so many responded quickly, uh, a lot quicker than they realized that they are capable of responding to things. And um, that's actually fascinating. In a world where it would take brokerages years and years and years and years and years to em- embrace something or develop something or, you know, like get behind an idea. Real estate brokerage had only a moment in which to spring into action as a result of COVID. And uh, many, many, many of them did. Um, Closing offices and utilizing technology and you know things you didn't think possible a week ago were now possible because you had no choice. Um, and I think to some extent, like that's the gift of COVID. In in a, in a, you know, with all due respect to all of the calamity around COVID, there is some silver linings that you need to look at to learn uh, from. And so, like, you know, the fact that you could be more nimble. Um, that you can perceive the next oncoming thing and get your hands wrapped around it and have an execution plan before it actually hits rather than years after, 
I think I'm seeing more and more brokerage having that kind of discussion. Um, I also think that more and more are taking on bigger campaign concepts and doing things within the community that they hadn't before that are somewhat sophisticated. You know, for Ladder and Bloom, as an example, um, we gave them an idea that they fully embraced. I never thought that they would, but this was, you know, two months into COVID at the launch of their campaign. Um, I said, you know, to live out your campaign mantra, you actually need to do something um, significant within the community. And I presented an idea that they took and fully embraced and did it. And it had a really big positive impact on their agents in the community. Um, that doesn't often happen in the brokerage world where members of the community stop and talk about a brokerage. Uh, so I'm seeing that happen, and I think that that's exciting. Um, I have a love affair with independent brokerages. I like independent mom-and-pop family-owned companies. I think there's so much energy and tradition and legacy and desire. Uh, and so, you know, within that realm, which is my sweet spot, it's who we mostly work with, I'm seeing things that are celebratory and inspiring as you were talking right I, I different things are coming to mind covid has had an interesting impact on how people go about things i i guess my lingering concern of where we are now and as we look forward to probably you know another four or five six months of of people mostly working remote is that the culture that surrounds Many, many companies, right, not just real estate related, the culture that's built inside an office space, the relationship between employees and, and, and staff and the people that they interface with every day. And in real estate's case, you know, how staff interacts with their customers, the, the agents, um, seeing that we are all still fairly well out of the office and will continue to do so it has been a real challenge i think to keep up that culture bar right it's very hard to keep connecting with people when you're not seeing them every day and people make a good effort but you know also the real estate market has gone crazy so agents are busier now everybody's busier now because there's a lot of activity especially in major markets with with home sales going on right now florida is on fire which is great i'll take it but, but that culture, right, I do feel that the, a void is being created in the culture that people had from gathering in offices. Do you have any thoughts of how you can keep connected like that virtually other than, you know, Zoom happy hours, which I think people have gotten tired of, sales meetings, which were super popular first, and now that's kind of dwindled off. It, it, now that we're really getting into the long of this, you have any thoughts on how to keep that culture going? Hard is good. The harder, the better. Um, I went to college. They gave us impossible tasks, uh, business concepts that were, in a way, almost ludicrous. Um, my task was an airplane with no seats flying between New York and Florida, build a brand campaign around that, get people to buy the ticket. You know, an impossible task. It... it it made you think about, oh, this is impossible. Nobody would do that. Um, but, but your job is to get them to do that. So how do you do that? So I like hard. Uh, the harder, the better. I like these kind of challenges. Um, I have many ideas, but all those ideas need to be based on 
when I first must learn about a company. This is one of those areas where I just don't like to dole out generic advice because one idea may be applicable to you and your company, but may not work at all on some other company. So like I need to understand what the culture was um, before I can then give advice on, and we do a lot of this by the way. Um, so, and they're all different solutions, but they all have to be based on something meaningful so that when you do it, the recipients of that action can see it for what it is, truth, and not like some fabricated device to just get me to feel like part of the culture when I know it's not real. I think that's good advice, that you do work on that and that there are solutions out there. They're not easy. And um, you could certainly be helpful in kind of helping companies evolve their culture over this virtual platform, which we've been talking about doing for how long, right? We've been talking about, oh, we're going to give up our offices and agents are going to work remote and well, <laughs> and it never happened until it, until it did. And now that it's happened, everybody's like, oh no, I want to go back to the office. <laughs> so it's um, it, it's been an interesting time. I guess just finally, you guys have also always tracked property technology and you keep um, kept a good handle on the new in this space, property technology, prop tech. Um, any good prop tech companies right now that people may not know about that you think people should look at? You know, we have a, a prop tech list on our website. Um, and I would invite folks, if you just go to thousandwatt.net slash prop tech dash guide, it's a full guide there. So there's lots of companies I like. Um, you know, I like, I like Side. It's a brokerage, prop tech brokerage out of San Francisco. I'm enamored by their founder and CEO, Guy Gal. Guy's brilliant. Um, he, he would be at that top of my list of the smartest people in real estate. Um, sitting in a discussion with him and Brian, it's, uh, it's really an exercise in mental calisthenics just to keep up and track. Um, but I like what they do. I think they're highly uh, engaging and success, successful and agents which side love it. Um, so, you know, there's, that would be maybe my personal, again, I'm a, I'm a brokerage guy. I like brokerage. Um, I resonate more. There are other, there's, you know, tech solutions in here as well. Um, but I don't use real estate tech. So I can't speak to it at the same level as I understand brokerage. And, you know, we, we did some work for side. So I was able to get inside of side and like understand it on a deeper level. So that would be, I keep my eyes open for them because when they go national, um, it's going to become a big challenge to brokerage again, and just what they offer. That's good. That's good. I mean, they've just, I just started hearing about them in Florida. So they're just, just coming to Florida and I'm just starting to hear the first things about it. And, uh, you know, as I say it, they're trying to outcompass compass, right? So they're wooing agents, offering them gifts. And it's, it's very interesting to watch. I, I, I always say, you know, we started this fire. We can't, <laughs> you have to expect that sooner or later people would wake up and do the same thing. So it's, um, it's been interesting, but, but, but like I said, we're just at the very beginning of it. Um, 
before we go into the lightning round and literally I could stay and talk to you for hours because I just love the way your mind works and where it goes. And it makes me, it makes me think of all kinds of things that I don't usually get to think about on a day-to-day basis. So it's, it's, it's been a, it's been a fun one for me to do and an interesting one for me to do. Is there anything you want to share before we jump into the lightning round? Probably. Um, but I can't think of it offhand. Um, I think I, I need somebody to shake me and that's like, you know, serve me up a question, I will have a response for you. Um, but most of my day in my world is really built around client work. I'm just looking at working on client work all day, and that's just all I'm thinking about. Um, and then when the day is over, I veg out. There's nothing going on in my head uh, until somebody asks me a question. So, uh, no, I don't have anything off the top of my head that this has been great. You've asked me so many good things. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, again, like I said, you know, you, a lot of it just came up in the moment and I could literally kind of talk to you for hours and, and always enjoy your perspective and the things you have to say. It always makes me think of things that I don't often think about, which is a good exercise I think for everybody to go through, right? We all, just like you, we all get bogged down in whatever our day-to-day is and we don't get a chance to kind of step back and look at things from a different perspective and think about things in a different way. So I always appreciate you bending my brain, so to speak. So just to close, we always like to um, go through a lightning round of questions. This podcast is from the ground up. So we like for everybody that's listening to get to know you a little bit better about how you grew up and from the ground up. So are you ready? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Hit me up. Where were you born? Brooklyn, New York, top of the food chain. (laughs) <laughs> and I hear it in your voice still. Um, brothers, sisters, what's the birth order? I'm number one, uh, son of number one. A lot of pressure on me from my grandfather, who was a big dignitary and diplomat in the world. Um, I had two younger brothers and a younger sister. Very good. What's your academic background? Um, I'd like to say that I really learned everything uh, I need to know from the streets of Manhattan and Brooklyn where I grew up but school-wise I completed my third year of college um I did not complete my fourth because I was in a band we had a record deal and I left college to go become a rock star Um, I love that so but you know like honestly by my third year uh where I completed this um massive project I had a job offer I delayed it when I going out to pursue uh, my musical career. Um, But I realized that what it called for me to do, I couldn't do. I wasn't, I'm not a performer. I don't like being on stage. Uh, You know, when you're in college playing bars and clubs, it's kind of fun. But like once it becomes where you're on tour and you have to be here and you have to be there and you got to do this radio show at this time and do that at that time and, uh, perform on these stages where like I never stood on before and I like to have everything perfect. The sound wasn't perfect. I just found that wasn't working for me. And I was dating a girl uh, who I was in love with. And uh, this was before cell phones and internet and stuff to where you're just able to talk for 60 seconds using a payphone. I quit and came home and finished out school and married her and uh, got my job and, um, still working, still married to her and, you know, like 
long answer to uh, a simple question, but um, well, what a gift that was! What a gift that was. Who do you have a mentor? Uh, somebody in your career that you felt has been a good mentor to you? Yeah, this guy named Knox Armstrong, which was um, uh, a, a, an executive at YNR that graded that um, project that I took a year to do uh, and hired me at YNR and um, taught me the difference between advertising and branding um, and uh, really took me under his wing and taught me things that I don't think I ever would have learned had he not done that. That's good. That's good. Now you said you married your, your wife. Do you have children? Yes, uh, I have um, three boys and a girl, just like the family I came from. And, and where are adults. they in the world? They're all adults? Uh, they're all adults. The three older ones are here in Portland, and uh, they live here in the city. And then in August, uh, my wife and I painfully took our child to the airport and put him on a plane and sent him to Europe to get out of America. Um, and he's going, he, he got a scholarship to many colleges, but accepted um, a scholarship at the uh, HU University in Utrecht, Netherlands. And he's studying creative business uh, there. And I don't know when I will see him again. It's very hard. But yeah, it's we share the this. best thing. But, yeah, my son lives in France and he's been there mm-hmm. for six years now and that's been the hardest part i just don't know when i'm going to see him again and um uh, yeah i i don't know that i mean for everybody that goes through that it's it it, it's an ache in your heart that doesn't go away and think about it every day so i can certainly relate and and hope for both of us that we'll be able to either get to europe or have them come back to us sometime soon because 2020 didn't see my son the entire year let's hope 2021 brings him home at least for a little while. At yeah, least for a little while. You can't while. bring so them home for holidays. Yeah. No. 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 And FaceTime is great, but it's not the same. <laughs> um, you live in Portland. And what do you like best about your home? Um, my, I mean, my city or my actual e- physical either house? Or your actual physical thing, like we're in real estate, right? We do have to talk about the real estate. So when yeah. I know you moved, you moved to Portland, you were in California. I remember yeah. you writing about moving from your move from California to Portland. Um, and, and so I feel like I, I know all about that, but I don't know, are you enjoying Portland? And you're, I think you live in a condominium. So how, how do you like living in Portland and what do you like best about where you're living physically? Well, I grew up in an apartment building. It's what I kind of know. Uh, so I live in the city. Uh, I live in a high rise. Um, we, uh, we like our space um, because for the first time in our life, it's a space for my wife and I. The kids are not here and they can't come out. So uh, it's really very cool uh, to go back to the days when it was just her and I. So I love that. We have great views to see the sunset every night. Um, I am no longer in love with Portland, Oregon. Uh, the second I can list and sell this condo, uh, I'm out of here. Um, the city has been demolished by uh, the uh, just it's just been demolished by lack of government, by um, right wing and left wing 
rioters. Uh, it's it's uh, businesses have all but left. Everything is empty. Uh, office space is completely gutted. There is nobody in offices here. Most of the retail is gone. It's a shell of what it was, and there's no sense that it can come back. So uh, it was a great city. I loved it here. I'm ready to move on. I'm sorry. I know that you know Portland. What? How how long was it occupied with the riots? I mean, were you was that close to where you where you live? Yes. Yeah. 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 I, I in the beginning I went to the riots because I believe that police brutality is a real thing. I believe that our Afro-American brothers and sisters are being poorly treated um, and profiled and um, there's inequity in that reality. And um, I personally felt the need to be on the street uh, and have my voice be heard. But, you know, to a point when that was the reality, but then when those riots just became riots for no other reason and people needed to just get out and vent and create damage, <clears throat> I pulled back in. Plus, I mean, there's COVID. You have to protect yourself. Um, but, yeah, nightly. I mean, we'd smell the tear gas. We would hear the helicopters. Um, and, uh, you know, my building is all boarded up. A lot of the buildings here are boarded up because we're afraid of what may... I mean, it, what you see on TV is kind of... It's, it's exaggerated and skewed politically, but the reality is the city's been heavily damaged by it, um, and the government here just seems incapable of dealing with it. Um, and so uh, as a citizen, you can't. this is a cause you can't fight for. You have no say in city government. Um, so I don't mind, you know, take, I want to take the whole family, all the kids, and go somewhere else. Where, I don't know. Um, I'll determine that once I can clearly see a path out. Um, so, but I, I'm good. I'm in a good headspace, and uh, you know, home is where my wife is, and I am. So, when wherever we are, we make home, and that's good. That's 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 a nice that's a nice way to put it. Uh, when you get a chance, what, where is your favorite vacation spot? Oh, so, uh, Hawaii. Without a doubt. Uh, the Big Island or Kauai, um, without even, I, I just don't need to go anywhere else. I could just keep going back there. That's good. That's good. Do you have a morning routine? Uh, yeah. Uh, um, I wake up every morning at 4.30. Uh, I get dressed. Um, I drink a full glass of water with beet powder. And then I grab a uh, pickup stick and a bag and I go out onto the street and I clean every morning. Uh, I clean around my neighborhood. Um, and then when that bag is filled, I then walk. I uh, try to clock in about two, three miles of good, hard, fast cardio. Uh, I get home about 5.45, I meditate. Um, and that's about the time my wife starts waking up. So... Uh, I'll start preparing breakfast, get the dog food ready, and then we go out and walk the dog. Um, my wife always comments how clean the street is. <laughs> uh, and because it's a dirty, it's so dirty out here. Again, this is nobody cleaning up. So uh, there's garbage everywhere. Uh, and then I go to work. I start work about 7.15. 
That's every day. Every day. What do you consider your biggest failure and your best success? I think they're both the same for me. Um, so failure is only really a failure is when you make a mistake and don't learn from it. So I have no failure because I make a lot of mistakes, but I learn from them um, and don't repeat them. So I guess my greatest success are the things that I do the next time I'm presented with the same exact scenario. I don't make the same mistake again. Um, so I don't know. I Maybe this sounds arrogant, but I don't view anything I've done as a failure unless I didn't learn from it. But I was always kind of taught to learn from your mistakes, like make mistakes, learn from them. That's how you grow. Yeah, I, I, I think that that's at least that's a pretty consistent answer I get for anybody that he can. Everybody feels like they learn something from the failure. And of course, you know, everybody strives not to repeat it. But some of the best lessons are learned from something that went wrong in the first place. So I think that's a, that's a pretty consistent answer with at least most people I've asked it to. Last question. Do you have any aspirational goals, things that you'd like to do? Maybe it's not even business related, but maybe personal you know, I've always wanted to be an archaeologist, and I, I think in a way I apply whatever innate skill set I have um, in my current occupation because I dig deep to find artifacts and recreate um, a story around it. So, But I, I've always been enamored by archaeology, so my aspirational goal um, would be if I, if I ever do retire from this um, – to maybe go out and be part of a dig. I'd like to find something under the ground um, and have that. I just think what a charge it would be to like wisp away the sand with your little brush and discover the top of what turns out to be a 20 foot, 30 foot excavation where you reveal a building or something like that. Um, so, you know, other than that, Beth, like, I mean, I'm married, the girl of my dreams. I've got amazing kids. I have a nice business. I have a great business partner. I love my employees. You know, like I've accomplished mostly everything that I set myself out to, um, and uh, except for that, I've never been on a dig. <laughs> <laughs> so well, I love that. I love that aspirational goal. I really do. I mean, I think, you know, it's Mark Indiana Jones Davison. So, <laughs> no, no, I, I'm not I, that guy. I don't want to be, uh, you know, running through caves, you know, dealing with what happens like when you go on digs, isn't traps. it? I mean, you go or you want the quiet work <laughs> of sanding down things, the, the, the quiet, solitary work of discovery. That's something. what I want. But I mean, okay. Yeah. Okay. That's what I want. Just that, you know, the hat, that little tan hat. <laughs> and uh, a jacket with lots of pockets. Yeah, no, no Indiana Jones. I don't need a gun or a whip on my side. If I have to do that, I'm in the wrong profession. <laughs> You'll give up your whip when you quit the real yeah. estate business, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> I crack it a lot in, in my current job. I want my next goal to have no... Uh, yeah, I'd like, I'd like to do something to where I'm not having to... Uh, like interact with like I like an inanimate reality like you dig and you find something and it is what it is I don't have to like talk to it and sell it and convince it and uh get feedback from it like 
it's all part of my daily reality. I accept it. I understand how to work with it. It's important and I love it on its end. But at some point, like I'd like my next step to just be just really simple, really simple where I could just, like, like I said, brush away some sand and hopefully find something or nothing. You know, when I go to a beach, I always love to walk on the sand and my eyes are always down. I'm always looking at shells and rocks and if I see something glistening. I run over and like dig a little bit to see what it might be. And it's always nothing. Um, but like the hope of finding something is always there. That's it. Nice and simple. Well, good. Well, good. I like that. And last but not least, where can people connect with you? I am super easy to reach. Um, my email is just my name, Mark, with spelled with a C, M-A-R-C, at thousandwatt.net. Um, and my cell number, 805-704-1715. Text me. I'll text you right back, like unless I'm in a meeting. But I'm really easy to reach. Indeed you are. And I just, in close, want to thank you again for agreeing to join us today. I really enjoyed catching up with you. I love all the things you had to say and um, look forward to catching up again with you soon. Yeah, same, Beth. I, I did it because I just wanted to talk to you. Um, <laughs> and it's been good. Great to catch up. Thank you for this. You're very welcome. It's been my great pleasure. This episode of From the Ground Up was sponsored by Feather the Nest, the crowdfunding source for all of your real estate needs. Why register for silverware when you can start your way to owning or renting your own home? Please sign up for your nest at www.featherthenest.com. A special thanks to my extraordinary producer, Sohail Fazludin, who has made this podcast possible.